Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Annie Zaleski to talk about her 33 and a third book on Duran Duran's Rio, which is available in a brand new expanded edition. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Annie Zaleski, author of the 33 and a third book on Duran Duran's Rio. Annie, welcome. Thanks for having me. And so you're just fresh from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, correct? I am actually just a couple days ago. It was it was a wonderful, long-awaited night for the band. <laughs> it's been interesting to see uh, the critical fortunes turn because you know I'm an '80s kid, and Duran Duran was massive, massive, massive when I was a kid, but no critical respect. What's your take on that? Why did that change? Why did that happen in the first place, and why did that change? So back in the 80s, and you're, you're completely correct, when you go back and look at press from the 80s, there's some really mean things that were said about the band. Um, part of it, uh, it, you know, it's kind of a multi-pronged thing. I mean, first off, they were really big on MTV. And at the time, music videos were this kind of new medium. And people were still kind of trying to get used to it. And we're still trying to figure out how that fit into the music landscape because you know prior to MTV coming into um, you know prior to MTV coming to prominence you know music videos existed but they weren't as ubiquitous and basically uh, you know and and bands didn't quite know how to make music videos you look at a lot of the kind of the american bands they're just sort of live shots Duran Duran made these beautiful 
basically mini movies. And that was very different. And so people didn't quite know what to make of it. They, they thought that the band was just a video band. You know, there was some suspicion whether or not they could even play live or even sing live. So there was that. They were all very good looking. And, you know, there's this whole perception, I think, sometimes that, um, you know, if, if you're good looking, you know, you can't also be talented or you can't also be a great musician. And um, so there was a little bit of jealousy, too, I think, on from some corners of the press because they were very confident and they just really carry themselves um, in a very poised way. And on top of that, too, they had a lot of teenage girls as fans and people always, always denigrate the taste than the opinions of teenage girls. And so there was a lot of disrespect because of that. But on the flip side, this, this, the tide kind of turned and Duran Duran kind of started getting more respect because a lot of those teenage girls finally started, you know, you know, having positions of power in journalism, you know, as broadcasters, on TV, as journalists. And they really kind of started to be able to sort of turn the tide and write about the band in a very critical, you know, informed way. That's part of it. Part of it, too, is 80s music now gets a lot more respect. You know, I think back in the day, there was that little bit of, um, uh, you know, feeling that the 80s were kind of, you know, uh, just kind of light, lightweight in a sense. And people are now kind of listening to the music and saying there was a lot of cool stuff that went on. There was a lot of sophisticated stuff that went on. You know, John Taylor is a really great bass player. Those keyboards that Nick Rhodes had, those, those are pretty great. Andy Taylor's guitars pretty awesome. And so there was a lot of, you know, people are able to see the music now, maybe a little bit less um, blinded by the fame or the, you know, kind of the, the tabloid stories around Duran Duran. And so basically what's left is the music, which is the most important thing. And it's quite an enjoyable album. I've gone, I've really enjoyed actually going back and, and listening to their whole discography. Although I have to say the first three albums and the Power Station and Arcadia kind of loom over most of their later stuff. I think some of their later stuff in the mid-90s picks up. But but I was really impressed at how well it had held up over the years. And I wanted to kind of get you to share your history with the band, because you're younger. You weren't an 80s Duran Duran girl. And, and so tell us how you got into the Duran Duran in the 90s. So it's I got into – I was a teenager in the early 90s. And so actually I got into them via MTV, but a different era. I got into them via Ordinary World. Um, that video, uh, that was like that. It's so funny because that song and that single have really sort of eclipsed a lot of their 80s output, honestly, just because it's such a beautiful well-written song and so that was like my big introduction I remember seeing the video on MTV and calling my friend hey it's on MTV and at the same time they were on the radio and I grew up in Cleveland Ohio and you know come undone and ordinary world and too much information all from the wedding album in the early 90s had a lot of airplay but at the same time um, VH1, I believe, and probably MTV as well. And also the radio station played a lot of 80s Duran Duran. So the kind of cool thing is that you were sort of able to come to both eras of the band all at once. So even though my kind of entry point was a lot of the new music, you know, all the older music was still it felt very vibrant because you could still hear it around. You know, I could still go to my record store and buy decades, the greatest hits record or buy a cassette of Rio pretty cheap or take those records out of the library and listen to it. So I, you know, I was kind of lucky in a sense that I got to experience all eras of the band around the same time. And you basically slept on that painful era for them in the late eighties when they were just cold as ice and could not buy a hit. 
and were absolutely out of fashion. It was, I remember being kind of staggered by it at the time. Um, my own history with him was that my big brother, I was living in a very small town in the Texas panhandle and my big brother was cool and sophisticated because he was going to Texas tech in Lubbock, which as you know, is a world center of hipness. And he was sending back these mixtapes and, you know, the Dead Kennedys, XTC, Gang of Four, the, uh, a Texas band called the Judys, all this new wave stuff that was just like manna for, from heaven for me and my friends who had discovered the Ramones on pay cable, but that was about it. And Duran Duran was in there, not not a full album side or anything, but but several singles and fit right in. I mean, just as cool as could be. And then six months later, every girl in middle school is all over Duran Duran. And it was very sort of, it was the first time that I'd had one of my cool secret dude bands suddenly stolen um, by all the girls at school. So it was, um, you know, pretty interesting experience. And then they just become this institution and you couldn't avoid them. If you wanted to dance at the middle school dance to the high school dance, you were going to deal with Duran Duran. And I liked him fine. Although I can remember um, when Seven and the Ragged Tiger came out and Wild Boys was being teased by the DJ. You know, stick around, we're going to play the new Duran Duran. And everybody was really pumped. And then Wild Boys came on, and I can remember really trying to like it and being just underwhelmed. And and it felt to me like from then on, they were on the slide. But I re- realize now that was totally not the case, that they were still going gangbusters uh, all through the Seven and the Ragged Tiger. Um, and, and then... Uh, you know, it was the power station and Arcadia and the different and Simon LeBond's yachting career that, that broke the band up. But let's go back to the start. Where'd they come from? And what kind of scene did they emerge from a scene or was it just kind of, you know, a one off thing? Um, you know, a little from column A, a little from common, column B. Um, they came from Birmingham, England. Um, and, you know, luckily enough that the co-founders of the band were John Taylor, Nick Rhodes, who were uh, childhood friends who both discovered, you know, loving Roxy Music and David Bowie, but all of the kind of the cool bands that were coming up at the time. Um, you know, they had the good fortune of being able to see pretty much like, you know, every great 70s band you could think of, you know, uh, basically live and go and buy their records in real time. And so they really, you know, and they had a vision. They were both very ambitious. Um, you know, John went to art school briefly. Um, you know, Nick got, got a keyboard pretty early on and they put together a vision for this band and they were very ambitious kids. And so but Birmingham also everyone was doing something a little bit different. Like when you look at the music history of Birmingham, you know, you have people like Judas Priest, but then you have people like UB40. And so it was a very eclectic scene. And especially because Birmingham was a little bit outside of the shadow of London, you kind of had room to experiment. And so even though the band was drawing on, you know, a lot of the the sounds and kind of approaches and aesthetics of their favorites, they really had the space to develop their own sound. And so they found a drummer in Roger Taylor who kind of shared their same musical aptitude. Uh, you know, later on in the late 70s, they all got into disco. And so they had kind of that disco and punk collision. And then they found Andy Taylor, a guitarist via a classified ad. And then Simon Levon um, came via the an ex-girlfriend who worked, you know, a friend of a friend type thing. And that's how they came together. You know, they had other people in the band, of course, you know, like like any young band, you kind of cycle through different people until you find a good lineup. But um, that's how they kind of came together. Let's go ahead and hear our first song. This is um, Planet Earth from Duran Duran's first album, not from Leah. 
and that was Planet Earth from Duran Duran's first album. And yeah, they came from Birmingham, which is a you know pretty storied musical history city in Britain. You've got the Moody Blues and the Move and ELO in the 60s. And then in the 70s, they take this hard turn towards metal with Black Sabbath and Judas Priest. But then in the 80s, it's not, you know, like you mentioned, it's UB40, but also Dexy's Midnight Runners and Duran Duran all start rehearsing in the same rehearsal space right around the same time. And they take different trajectories, but all of them make it to the top. But it's hard to find a, you know, unifying thread there. I guess love of American and and Jamaican music would be, you know, soul and funk would be the the unifying thread. UB40, obviously, mostly a reggae uh, influenced band. Dexy's Midnight Runners. I would almost call them neo soul uh, before their time. I guess you could put them in with Simply Red and Wham as being really soul influenced British bands. But they also kind of had that weird U2 thing going on. Um, and then Duran Duran, of course, you know, famously tried to combine Chic and the Sex Pistols. Um. And which always sort of baffled me, but I thought the explanation in this was pretty good, that it was the rebelliousness of the Sex Pistols, the independent, unique identity, not necessarily the musical sound. And then Chic is just obviously audible um, in there. And also, I also think we should mention their management team. Um, they, they kind of became the house band at a place called Rum Runners there in Birmingham. Two brothers, um, Bremer brothers, Notes. but they they put together and uh you know were there from the beginning and that's why it's called seven and the ragged tiger because they saw themselves as a seven piece group and um and also the thing that really struck me was the ambition that they had a goal in 1981 they said we're going to play the hammersmith odeon in 82 and that's a big arena a theater size venue then we're going to play Wembley, which is a stadium-sized venue, in 83, and Madison Square Garden in 84, and they pulled off all three. Um, that's pretty astonishing. Like, You rarely see a band that's that focused and actually pulls off their plan uh, to that degree. Um, tell us about the first album and, and how it came together for them working within the record industry. I mean, so the, you know, the, the, you know, they say that you, you know, you write your first album pretty quickly, I think. And Duran Duran had already started, like they recorded in like late 1980 and polished it off in 1981, early 1981. And luckily they had a lot of those songs ready because they were sort of playing live. Um, and some of the songs had kind of been kicking around in different forms for a couple of years as they were kind of finding their footing. So, you know, they basically had all these songs kind of floating around. And so they ended up going into the studio with Colin Thurston, um, you know, who co-engineered Bowie's Heroes, worked on Iggy's Lust for Life, the Human League's Reproduction. So all of these really interesting sounding records, you know, he really knew how to kind of bring out the the personality of a band and the unique qualities of a band. And so they worked with him and they put it together. And, you know, it's, it's such an interesting debut record because the kind of the Duran Duran sound, they really kind of emerged fully formed. You know, you have these very cool atmospheric synthesizers and you have Andy Taylor's kind of, you know, rock and roll, glammy guitars at kind of the core but then you have the disco rhythms with Roger and John Taylor, you know, this really kind of steady backbeat and things like that. And, you know, and Simon Laban's very surrealist abstract poetry, you know, but at the same time, you know, you have a lot of, you know, you have Nightboat, which is a very kind of creepy and ominous song, or you have, you know, anyone out there, which you listen to them play it live early on. And it's like basically a raging punk song. I mean, they really had a lot of range even at that point, and it just 
you know, it, it, it's, it's amazing what a cohesive record that is. Well, let's go ahead and hear our next track. This is Hungry Like the Wolf. Hungry Like the Wolf, one of the key singles off Duran Duran's Rio album. And one thing that struck me reading this book was just kind of, I wouldn't say overwhelming, but pretty dominant influence of David Bowie. And that's kind of one of my big sort of pet theories is that David Bowie, even though he was seen or said to be seen as, you know, an aged rock star by this point, all of the punk and new wave bands to me, almost without exception, were taking their lead from David Bowie. I mean, anybody who cites the Velvet Underground as an influence in this period probably got it via David Bowie. And, you know, in their ad where they hired uh, uh, Andy Taylor, they, you know, requested, we're looking for Andy Taylor, that he answered. They're looking for a cross between Phil Manzanera, the guitarist from Roxy Music, Mick Ronson of David Bowie, Spiders from Mars, uh, Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars, David Bowie's glam band, and then David Gilmore, Pink Floyd. So I think that... Um, that pretty much sums up where they're coming from and where they're going, except for the chic, the chic aspect. And they're looking for that guitar player to add the rock element. And it turns out that I think Andy Taylor was their secret weapon in reaching American audiences and, and breaking through an American radio. But before we get there, I want to talk about video. Tell us, you know, how did they get into making videos? You already talked about what they accomplished as video makers, but how did that start? So, they were lucky enough to grow up in the UK. There was such a culture of music video in the UK already, um, you know, because of artists like Queen, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody came out in the mid 1970s. You had people like Kate Bush. So it was kind of expected as a UK band, you were going to make a music video and they were light years beyond anyone else in the world. They really had a good sense and a really good understanding of, you know, how video could enhance music, you know, more than a lot of other bands. And so it was kind of, you know, like a foregone conclusion. Okay, we're going to make music videos. And so for on their debut record, they made a music video for Planet Earth. And they made one also for Girls on Film. And they're very, very different videos. You know, Planet Earth is sort of, um, that was their kind of their first video. And so they're kind of on like an ice flow. And it's it's very stylized. You know, Russell Mulcahy um, filmed that. And then later on in the year, they filmed Girls on Film, which was became notorious, no pun intended, for you know basically being kind of pornographic in a sense. You know, there's some nudity. There's some definitely suggestive, you know, movements and poses and things like that very sexually suggestive, but it's all kind of done in a cheeky way. That's what's kind of interesting is as titillating as it is. And as you kind of even look at it today and be like, this is really risque. This would not get on the radio. You know, this would not get on TV. Um, you know, there's something that there's something kind of cheeky about it. And that's, that's also very um, UK, you know, UK sense of humor there. Um, but it got them attention. You know, when you look at America and the press that they got, it definitely, you know, made people write about them because it was so shocking. You know, at the time, it was just like very, you know, it was made for nightclubs. And so they would get played in nightclubs, and which is exactly the place where it should be. Um, 
but it was it was very interesting. It really kind of you know elevated their profile in, in a way that you know they they kind of hoped I think that it would bring them you know an elevated profile, and it actually worked. Yeah, I remember that video making a pretty big impact. It actually stopped a friend of mine from getting cable TV because his mom saw that video. And uh, Jay Giles' band Centerfold, which came out around the same time and was similarly themed and exploitive. It's also interesting to me that there doesn't seem to have been any kind of feminist pushback against her, at least not that I'm aware of. It was this early Reagan era um, time when when – I, I don't know. I don't know what was exactly going on with feminism at that point, because I know in the late 80s, you know, that there was some pretty strong critique of that kind of stuff. And in the 70s, there definitely were. But this was just a period um, when you could get away with that kind of chic decadence. And, you know, they exploited it brilliantly, like with the uh, using the extra dirty version on pay cable and also on the on the video album that you could buy. And that's as we've learned over and over again, if you want to sell a new technology put some porn in people <laughs> dudes dudes will pony up so uh, you know pretty brilliant but i also want to talk about their creative balance because they're one of these bands where they tend to credit all the songs to the whole group and i was always cynical about that as a kid but it does seem like they really were a truly collaborative songwriting team that's true and and you know and just and going back just briefly i guess the girls on film too I think the fact that it was banned so much, I think that does prove that there was a pushback to it. You know, it definitely did not True. just get on MTV. There was editing and stuff like that. And, you know, there was there was definitely a little bit of eyebrow raising about it. And so, but it, it got them, people wanted to see even the edited version. Um, but yeah, they, in, in terms of like songwriting and things like that, they were absolutely collaborative at this point. You know, they were really, you know, they had a rehearsal studio in the rehearsal room in the Rum Runner. You know, they had demo time and East Studios owned by EMI, and they would kind of get together. You know, it's a very young band type thing. And so for some of these songs, yeah, it was like we're kind of putting like Hungry Like the Wolf came together like that. You know, it was kind of, you know, built in a day by everyone kind of contributing their parts. And, you know, when you have bands who kind of give credit to everyone in terms of songwriting, that's a really good recipe for making sure that, you know, things stay on the up and up. You know, U2 and REM very famously did that as well. And, you know, at the end of the day, it just it just helps balance things out a little bit. But but, yeah, you listen to the songs and you can tell, you know, everybody's everybody's achievement and everybody's sound is very balanced. They really knew how to kind of blend their individual parts together in a, in a really um, in a really good way. Yeah. And the important thing about the songwriting credit is that's where the real money is. And so so many bands before them, like Cream jumps to mind, were kind of ripped apart because of disputes over songwriting. Oh, yeah. The Birds also ripped apart and so it's a very smart way to, to you know uh share the money share the wealth uh in a, in a pretty equitable way um and then you already talked about the rum runner relationship but you've got a whole chapter called why rio matters and i'm just going to throw you throw that at you straight up why does rio matter how long do we have <laughs> i mean <laughs> no it's it's, it's 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 very true you know i think what, what's funny about it is that rio has its legacy and its influence and why it matters has really evolved and grown over the years, which I think has been really cool to see. I mean, first of all, when the record came out at the time, it sounded like nothing else out there. You know, uh, music was still, there were a couple of, you know, there were bands that were definitely starting to do very cool things. You know, you, you can like, you can kind of pinpoint 1983 when, you know, Tears for Fears came out, Rhythmics and, 
you know, things like that. But they sounded so different. And so, and so first and foremost, they were really trying to move music forward. You know, they weren't playing it safe. It sounded very different from their debut record. And so they were really kind of setting the blueprint already for their own career that we're just going to kind of keep moving forward. Um, you know, they really kind of bridged their, you know, 70s influences with kind of the future. You know, it wasn't like it was a record that was kind of taking everything that had been done before and kind of putting a little bit of spin on it. They really kind of amalgamated all their influences in a really smart way. You know, you can kind of say, well, it kind of sounds like Japan or, you know, there's a little bit of craft working and stuff in there, but they really kind of made it their own. And so it was really kind of the, one of the first really great examples of a band taking their 1970s influences and, you know, polishing up for the modern era. You know, beyond that, you know, obviously you can't talk about uh, the record without the Patrick Nagel art. I mean, I think Patrick Nagel, um, an artist who he wrote for or he drew for Playboy, among other places in the early 80s, was known for drawing these really glamorous, beautiful women. And he basically painted this beautiful picture that sort of, you know, set the tone for Duran Duran's kind of artistic aesthetic, but also really kind of set the tone for the 80s as well. You know, you see Rio and it, it's, that record cover in general, uh, you know, really kind of embodies the decade. And so it really kind of proved that, you know, you can make a record that's artistically important and musically important and musically forward looking, um, you know, and I mean, I, you know, I, I, those are just kind of three things offhand, you know, Simon LeBond's lyrics, you really cannot discount the, you know, people might sometimes kind of, uh, you know, not mock exactly, but just be like, what is he talking about, you know, in certain things, but, you know, they're very... It. Sorry to interrupt. There's uh-huh. a way you describe that in particular that I wanted to draw out. You 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 describe his lyrics as LeBond's conversations with. What is it about his lyrics that you makes it feel like a dialectic to you? You know, because he's not talking down to the audience. I mean, for starters, you know, he's not like he doesn't have everything figured out. And he's not proclaiming things from on high. He's kind of a narrator. He's kind of a surrealist abstract narrator and you know that really stood out to me when I was kind of reading the lyrics again you know he was kind of recounting things that happened to him and it's kind of it's kind of a dialogue you know there's even a reference in the liner notes to the fact that it's kind of a dialogue between it and ego I believe that's that's the phrase so there's really kind of uh, you know it's sort of like musings out loud in a sense but they're all very empathetic as well you know he's very moody and the things he's talking about can be very um uh, you know can be very sensitive you know, he's being making himself vulnerable, you know, not having a good time at a party and, you know, or trying to find someone and trying to make your dreams come true. You know, there's a lot of real kind of optimism in it, but also just really kind of heart on sleeve sentiments. And I think that's exceedingly, exceedingly relatable. Definitely. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk more about their video work and also breaking through in the United States. Yeah, I think you're right. There was definitely a breath of fresh air element. I can remember that on those tapes that my brother gave me, they stuck out from the kind of PIL, Joy Division, birthday party, kind of doom and gloom um, post-punk that was going on and and just kind of had a fresh, breezy, aspirational vibe to them. And, and I think it's because they were working class lads from Birmingham. They didn't... Have, well, I was about to say they didn't have any pretenses, and then I thought about Simon Le Bon, the poet and and the dramatist. <laughs> so they definitely had their artistic uh, side, but but they were they were also looking for the main chance and and completely unapologetic, which fit perfectly with the Reagan era. 
Um, tell us a little bit more about the the international travel aspect and the budgets that they got. Like, how did they get a quarter million dollars to make videos for the Rio album? Part of it was their label really believed in them. You know, even though their um, you know their their success in America was you know, kind of limited to dance clubs and college radio and a little bit under the radar in 1981, they really hit big in Australia and the UK. And so there was just a lot of anticipation for where they might go next because there was just such a groundswell of support. And so their label really believed in them, you know, and said, uh, you know, we you know we will kind of cobble together the money to make these videos you know the the funny thing is though is that no one can really agree on how much the videos actually cost you know if you look at every single interview there's a different number kind of quoted and thrown out uh, which was kind of funny when i was doing research for this but um you could just definitely tell that uh, you know there was there was a lot of belief in the band and you know and that comes down to their confidence but that also just comes down to you know, hard work, you know, if they, the label knew that if Duran Duran were, you know, going to be given support, they were going to work for it. You know, it wasn't like they were going to spend all the money and then the band was just going to kind of go and hang out at home. You know, Duran Duran had such a great work ethic, you know, your investment was worth it. Yeah. And that was clear. Um, they were just a success machine and, and, and hell bent on it. I have to wonder if, if, if it was record company accounting, because they're always trying to hide the P and, 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 you know, build a band for things, or if it was the director of the videos trying to hide the P from the record company. So, you know, lots of possibilities there, but I mean, they traveled to Sri Lanka and Tigua and made these beautiful, um, you know, really cinematic videos. And that wild boys video, uh, that, that, uh, Russell, how do you say his last name? Um, Mokai. Mokai. Okay. Mokai. Mokai. Yeah. Yeah, the the um, the video he made for Wild Boys is it's some people have described it as his his trailer for a feature film he wanted to make about William Burroughs' book of the same name, Wild Boys, and it's incredible. It's like, um, you know, Mad Max or the Road Warrior or something or Thunderdome. It's just incredible production. But this is another thing that it's easy to take for granted that Duran Duran succeeded in the United States. And we tend to say, oh, well, they were big on MTV, but MTV wasn't quite big yet. I mean, this is 81, 82, 83. We're talking about what was going on on American rock radio that created a window of opportunity for a group. A couple things. So it's, it's, it's very interesting because you're completely right that MTV launched, they launched in the suburbs, you know, they weren't even in New York or LA at first. And so it was all of the kids around the country who were, you know, lucky enough to live in suburbs who got exposed to all this amazing stuff on MTV. Rock radio was very, very meat and potatoes. Rock radio still sounded like the 1970s. You know, it was very guitar heavy. It was very, you know, there were very few women. It was, you know, all the bands you would think about, you know, Van Halen, Journey, you know, Rush, REO, Speedwagon. And so that's what rock radio was like up until basically sort of the, the last little bit of 1982, you know, for some stations, there was an edict that came down and said, you need to start playing new music. And, you know, Duran Duran had charted a little bit in 1982. I think that's what was the most interesting thing I discovered was that they, they were on the rock radio and kind of the lower echelons in, you know, after Rio came out and it didn't really do much and it kind of fell off the charts, but there was this edict, that said, hey, you need to, you know, play more new music, they really were kind of able to slip right in and slip right in and, you know, become a success because they got put into heavy rotation. Their label reissued Hungry Like the Wolf. 
which had been reissued and which had, be, had been issued after the record came out in May of 82. And they didn't do very much. But after the video, it, but the video was wildly popular on MTV. So there was this kind of groundwork laid because it was so popular and because there was you know some awareness of it that they got a remix. And then when radio was like, got to play new bands. And what did Duran Duran have? They had this a great guitarist in Andy Taylor, which, you know, so the, 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 the song sounded modern. You know, there were keyboards there. It sounded very new wave, but yet there was just a little bit enough of the kind of familiar tone that would could make it kind of slip right in on other, other, you know, heritage acts. And it was just, you know, it was a stroke of luck. It was the most amazing timing, but also, you know, hard work, you know, coming to fruition as well. Yeah, they were one of a wave of bands that took advantage of that opportunity. Men at Work from Australia, Adam Ant, the King Absolutely. of the Phoenix, Missing Persons, The Fix, Wall of Voodoo. It was kind of an exciting time, and a lot of that was, I mean, if you didn't have to live through it, you cannot imagine how bad rock radio was sucking in 81, 82. I mean, it was like King Biscuit Flower Hour to death, and they had rejected disco. Disco was all over the radio, like 79, 80. Then suddenly it was just gone. And they had rejected all but the sort of wimpiest new wave. I mean, no Ramones, no a tiny bit of Clash, no Sex Whistles for sure, you know. But you plenty of the Knack, a little bit of Blondie, but mostly it was just this classic rock had just played Stairway to Heaven and Freebird into the ground. So there was this opening, and yeah, Duran Duran um, really slotted in perfectly, and this then creates and it's also the another thing i want to mention was because mtv was so localized the record industry noticed quickly that you know kajagugu is selling in casper wyoming wtf what is going on here or you know you'd have two out of the four quad cities in iowa are suddenly selling this in person albums and the other two are not what's the difference well one side has mtv and the other one doesn't so they immediately figured out mtv could drive sales and they were desperate for sales because it was a, it was the first record industry recession since uh, basically the end of World War II. So they were very desperate to look for something. But then this creates the situation where suddenly Duran Duran is big on MTV. They're touring and they're suddenly huge on radio. And there's this big reaction. Tell us about Duran and Duranomania. I mean – you know, it's it's funny. It's comparable to Beatlemania, and you know, and that was that was also another reason why people were a little bit, I think, salty about the band because you know the Beatles were this totemic thing, and Duran Duran kind of spawned this you know immense fandom um, because they were so popular. It's it was unbelievable. You know, it started in 1983, 1984. That was kind of the peak. They were all over MTV. They were all over the radio. You know, they started getting, you know, press and teen magazines. Um, you know, in 1984 and 85, the merchandise started rolling out. Like, they were just everywhere. And they were just unbelievably popular. You know, it's it's hard now just because culture is so fragmented. I think Taylor Swift might be the, you know, the, the biggest kind of analog. And she's a massive superstar just in terms of ubiquity and someone like knowing who she is. But Duran Duran were huge. They were just unbelievably popular. You know, they were like, they couldn't leave their hotels without getting mobbed. You know, if they like went out in public, you know, they might get, you know, mobbed by people. So it was very, very, you know, it was very overwhelming. You know, it was one of those things where, you know, uh, you know, they were just like, just so immensely beloved and popular. Yeah. And I don't think people really grasp 
how quickly pop culture could dominate in that point in time. I mean, somebody like Katy Perry, it's almost like it takes a decade for her early 2010 hits to trickle down. My daughter's just getting into sort of 2012, 2014 era Katy Perry. And it's new to me and my wife. We we missed it when it came out. But in the 80s, you could not miss Duran Duran. It was playing in restaurants. It was playing at the mall. People were pl- playing their car radios with the windows down. Uh, you know, MTV was ubiquitous. And there were only like 20 channels. So, you know, people people heard this stuff in a way that, that we don't hear now. And yeah, the mania thing, it's fascinating to me how critically beloved the Beatles and Elvis and Frank Sinatra all eventually became after they, you know, were all kind of reviled initially because of their young girl fandom. And um, Duran Duran, I think because of the side projects and the way they kind of fragmented in the late 80s, they never got that, oh, this is a legit band putting out you know, they, they never really sort of had that artistic peak period in the middle. They came back in the 90s and, and had had a good run. But um, I think their critical respect was also hurt because of, of their kind of frankly flailing around late 80s at a period when they should have been consolidating the way some of their contemporaries, the way, say, you 2 did with Joshua Tree um, or something like that. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to, to – actually, it's time to cue my next song. And let's go ahead and hear Rio. It's – title song from Drake. And that was Rio, the title song of Dream, album of the same name. And just one of my favorite songs. I think that's um, just perfect pop craftsmanship. And that's something else that I think that they had over some of their post-punk predecessors, that they they just wrote great pop songs. But then Andy Taylor gave them that rock. And I, I don't even want to say edge, because the way his guitar is produced and, and mixed into the sound, it's not edgy. This isn't you know, Jimi Hendrix coming through with feedback or something or Napalm Death. This is very perfectly compressed and calibrated guitar sound that, that fit right in with like April Wine and Billy Squire um, and early 80s radio. But um, the the thing that's sort of fascinating that you leave out of the book is what happened next? What happened to the band that caused them to fall apart after Rio and Seven and the Ragged Tiger Tiger and the 83-84 Duran Duran Mania. Yeah, and that's you know that's uh, the funny thing is is that my word count was actually uh, <laughs> well over what I turned it anyway for my contracted book title. <laughs> uh, this is they're supposed to be like just Rio era. So yeah, it was very kind of a compressed like you need to focus on this era. So you know it probably would have been double the length that I got into what happened next. Um, even if I was able to do that, but I couldn't, um, you know, basically, you know, I think we look at it now and it was like young band who was just going so hard. They didn't take a break. 
and, you know, and they were, you know, they were with each other and there were, you know, some personality conflicts and I think, you know, different, uh, you know, indulgences and just everyone was tired and no one really, you know, was able to kind of take the time. And when they did kind of take a break, they kind of, you know, went off and did, like you know, Arcadia and Power Station and, you know, two very different side projects. And, you know, I think it was just a matter of, uh, you know, they just, they needed to take a break from each other and they did. And, you know, and that's, you know, I think in, in, in hindsight, you know, you look at something like this, you're like, you know, geez, maybe if they'd been able to take six months off, maybe things would have been different. Or, you know, maybe if, you know, they had been able to, you know, meet and hang out in a room, you know, like Metallica did with some kind of monster, you know, and talk to someone, maybe things would have worked out, but you don't know. It was, it was such a different time then. And so, you know, I think it was just kind of a combination of a, a lot of different things, you know, and that the, especially because the, you know, influences that they all, they shared all these influences, but they all had different ones as well. And so they also wanted to kind of explore those differences and they not, didn't necessarily think they could do that within the context of the band because Duran Duran was one thing. And, you know, cause like you listen to the power station, the power station is so different, you know, it's so disco, it's so rock and roll. And Arcadia is very, um, which I love this record and it's very, electronic and kind of experimental, even prog leaning a little bit. It's like both aspects of Duran Duran kind of like separated like oil and water or something like that. And um, so it's interesting, you know, in hindsight, you know, you can't really second guess things, but you know what I think Duran Duran's late eighties period is, is a little bit underrated and, you know, having you know, written this book and then kind of gone back to listen to it more. I'm like, there's some really good stuff here on Big Thing. I love Notorious. And even Liberty has some really pretty, some wonderful singles. So it's, it's time will come. It'll, it'll get its due. I like the optimism. And yeah, that's something about when you have people that's talented, it doesn't generally go away unless there's some kind of horrific drug problem or mental breakdown. They're generally still, uh, some of that spark will still retain, even if, you know, it's, it's, it's unfocused or the, the chemistry has has broken down. And that's another thing like power station and Arcadia were both immensely successful side projects. So I really can't think of another band with two side projects that successful, um, that wasn't driven by multiple lead vocalists. Um, you know, pretty unique in history. And another thing I want to talk about more is this remix and reissue thing and the actual physical properties of 12 inch singles and the way that, just the physics of it, if you have a record with more space for the grooves, the bass response is going to be stronger. So when they did things like, like when I was reading this, I was really sort of astonished. I was like, oh, they did a EP with some of the songs on it. That makes sense. What? They reissued it twice in two years, you know, <laughs> like with, with total remixes. So, um, you know, what's your angle on that? Like, have you actually gone back and listened to the physical vinyl and, and listened to the different mixes or... Do you think that the remixes were absolutely essential to their success or, or just a coincidence? It, you know, it's, it's interesting because uh, so the remix thing, that was a very popular kind of tactic um, back then. And especially with, um, you know, Capitol Records, who Duran Duran eventually were on. Um, you saw that a lot with Thomas Dolby as well. Um, you know, part of it is, you know, it, it, in hindsight, I, I should say in hindsight, it's funny. 
because you listen to the remixes and they're not so radical that you're like, oh, this makes all the difference in the world. There are very much differences. And all of the remixes are actually really great. David Kirshenbaum is fantastic. Um, but it's not like it's like the ma- massive sonic move that, you know, that it was made out to be that, you know, oh, Duran Duran will never get played if they don't, you know, have this remix. Um, you know, it, it's very savvy. You know, you kind of put the guitars and vocals a little bit higher in the mix. The keyboards are a little bit back in the mix. You know, it's it, it's very, very well done. But, you know, it's but it's it's. With them, especially though, the strategy was really savvy because you had the Carnival EP, which had dance remixes. Duran Duran was always very popular in the clubs. So you had this really great EP that was kind of, you know, stopgap, you know, six months after Rio came out or not even six months, five months after Rio came out. No, four months. Jeez, it was September. Um, That was really kind of, you know, able to kind of, you know, rekindle interest in the band in different kind of areas even though they had songs from their first record on there, you know, but in in North America at least. And so you were able to kind of, you know, remind people, hey, Duran Duran's a really great band. They have these new songs out. They have a new record out. And this sounds really awesome um, for the dance clubs in a place that were already popular. And because MTV was really starting to move toward dance music as well, it kind of caught the ear of like, you know, younger people as well. You know, one of the biggest challenges of writing this book and one of the more interesting things is trying to kind of puzzle together this narrative in terms of, um, you know, there are just so many different factors and reasons why Duran Duran really kind of became popular in 82 and 83. And the dance and the remixes are like another parallel strain of it. So it's kind of intersected with MTV and intersected with, you know, there was some dance radio stations as well that would play them. But um, but it's all part of a strategy. It's, it's, it's really, in hindsight, kind of putting it together. It is like a great Tetris game or, you know, a really, you know, a satisfying jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. And the dance club thing I don't think can be emphasized too much because they were one of the first, you know, rock bands and dance music had gotten separated in the late 60s, early 70s. And then through the disco era... They were seen as opposites in a lot of ways. Like when a band like Kiss went disco, which was unfortunate <laughs> pretty much every sense of the word, but there was a, a recoil from the fans and, and it was seen very much as, as a sellout or a posture. But with Duran Duran and a lot of these British bands, New Order comes to mind. Um, it just seemed very organic. And it, it was also, I think something that dance clubs were looking for because of the disco sucks backlash. And it was obvious that there was a lot of racism and homophobia involved in that. And when dance clubs could say, Oh, we're not black or gay. We've got these, uh, you know, brawny hetero British boys comes, you know, come back to the clubs and dance. Um, Do you feel like that they, I mean, I don't want to blame them for that. That was just the circumstances they were in. But was there any kind of backlash or resentment from from black artists or, or black dance club DJs about this British invasion on the dance floors? You know, I'm not sure. You know, that's something that I would have to kind of dig into a little bit more. Um, I do know that in the UK, uh, kind of the divisions that we you just described that you kind of see in America weren't necessarily as prominent. Um, you know, the, the the music and the the styles were, you know, disco didn't suck in the UK. You know, for Duran Duran's parlance, 
they loved disco. They thought it was super cool. You know, there was not that backlash. And so when they were incorporating disco, this was like them being genuine fans of the, the style and genuine fans and saying, this is amazing. We love Chic. We want to work with Nile Rodgers. We want to work with Bernard Edwards. Like they were such genuine fans of that. Chic and them, they were never uncool. You know, there was never any backlash. And so, um, but I don't know how it was perceived. I would have to look into that more. Cool. And then tell us about, actually, I need to play our last cue. Uh, this is, is there something I should know? And that was, is there something I should know, which uh, followed, you know, album. And tell us about how you see Rio's lasting influence and meaning in the big picture from vantage point of 20. Geez, I mean, that's such a big question because Rio is everywhere. I mean, you look at the covers, you know, every, you know, month or so, you see someone doing a cover of Hungry Like the Wolf or doing a cover of Rio. You know, there are so many homemade remixes uploaded to YouTube. It's unbelievable. Um, And, you know, and the band themselves are still touring, you know, every night reliably they tend to close their show with Rio. It's it's the album closer. You know, recently they've been playing Hungry Like the Wolf at track two. They even brought out Lonely in Your Nightmare, which is one of the rarest songs on Rio to be played live. It was very rarely played live in 1982. And over the years, it's only surfaced a few times. They even played that. And so there's still a lot of love and respect for the record. You know, the band always is, you know, extremely complimentary, of course, toward it. You know, they just really, they very much respect it. They value the music on there and they treat the music with a lot of reverence and respect. Um, And, you know, and it's really, you know, you even see like the album cover, you know, you look at the album cover, there's all sorts of spoofed t-shirts. I'm looking right now, there's a garbage pail kid that, you know, kind of spoofed it in a very, you know, lovely way. And so it's just, it's really, it's one of those records. It's one of those, eras that's almost like it's it's transcended kind of its original roots and it's just become you know a staple of pop culture you know when you look at rio and when you think of the songs on it it just exudes cool you know there's there's no doubts about it you know it's never it's not now it's never ever uncool to say yeah duran duran's rio you know it's always like this is awesome and i can't argue with you i think i think some of the backlash to that period was and I was pretty young, but living through it, there was definitely a feeling like something bad has happened. And that was the Reagan-Thatcher neoliberal era. And so I think a lot of the resistance to the pop culture of that era on the part of the underground or critics or whatever is this resistance to Reaganism, which Duran Duran went with. They went with the Thatcherism of, of the 80s. I mean, they didn't endorse it, but they weren't rebelling against it. And so I think some of the resistance to that, uh, you know, is explained by this sort of dread and fear of what was coming. And now that we're in it and it's all coming, (laughs) you know, this is just the water we swim in now. And so Duran Duran doesn't, um, I think that era has been forgiven. And I think a lot of younger people don't, aren't aware of 
kind of the suckitude of the early 80s and the imposition of the the Reagan Thatcher order um, and how completely resistance failed. But Duran Duran, I do agree. I really enjoyed going back and listening to stuff. And one last question. I, I've I finally found my notes. The Barrow Brothers were there. Were they yeah. actually encouraging Simon LeBon to spend all his money on yacht racing and risk his life on this stuff? Was that why they ceased to be the Duran Duran management? No, you know what they um, when you know John and Nick kind of hooked up with the managers in the late seventies. That was before Simon was even in the band. You know, they happened to be in Birmingham and they really saw the potential of the band. And so they really kind of helped them out early on, you know, with, you know, finances in terms of, you know, the things that the band couldn't do and kind of told the band, all right, go off and do your, you know, music stuff. And so it was kind of, you know, at least early on, it was it was a good relationship because they really, um, you know, were able to, uh, you know, I mean, they basically they, they worked together to kind of make everything grow. And so that's you know, early on, like that's kind of how, you know, sort of it kind of was then. And so, you know, Simon just enjoys yachting, you know, I, I respect it, you know, it's like, it's, it's, we're glad that he did not die, unfortunately, in the terrible yachting accident in the eighties, you know, but it's, um, you know, I am afraid of water, so you will not see me on a yacht, but, um, you know, or, or wide open water, I swim, but, um, but yeah, so I think, you know, that's, that's what he likes to do. And I, I respect it and I support it. Awesome. Yeah, it certainly made for a, a little drama for the Behind the Music um, H1 documentary back in the day. And so Annie, uh, my guest has been Annie Zaleski. The book is Rio from the 33 and one third series. So thanks so much for coming and explaining this key era. Thank you so much for having me. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes back Kit McIntosh to discuss the roots of Jamaican ska and American R&B of the 1940s and 50s. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points.
FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.